continue this morning, though, in our uh, study of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning. Um, our goal is the first 27 verses of chapter 9. There's a lot in there, um, and a lot, that I think, is relative to what we've already experienced this morning, and I think we have to ask our, ourselves a question as we sing about Jesus being our Savior and being the one who sets us free, um, as we express to God in song that we desire God's presence and to be in God's presence, we need to ask ourselves this morning, is that, is that true? Is that the reality that's in our hearts? Do we really want to be with God and to commune with Him and to uh, live a life in relationship with Him? Uh, is, that, is that true? Is that, is that real? Is that our spiritual reality? Or maybe it's a, a spiritual hope. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that's distant you know, from one's heart uh, this morning. But perhaps there's even a conviction that says, well, I know that's not right. It needs to be different than it is. Well, I think this morning we're going to be challenged by Jesus. Um, we're going to continue to be challenged by Jesus. We've already been challenged by Jesus as we've been studying the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And in, the, in it, we've seen this major theme. I just want you to remember this major theme um, throughout is just the authority and power of Jesus Christ. That he, uh, you know, Luke has really been setting up all along here. Jesus has authority. Jesus has power, and he's showing time and time again the authority and power of Jesus. And that's going to continue here. So let's go ahead again uh, to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get right into the passage. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here. This morning, we thank you for the privilege to come into worship, to sing praises to you, God, to look into the word that you have given us as you have revealed yourself to us. This morning, help us to acknowledge that you are great and that we are small. God, help us to know more and more your glory. As we look and see your son, Jesus, the one you sent as Savior for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you came for us and that you lived among us and that you were willing to die on a cross and suffer for us and that you rose from the dead and you are a risen Savior and King and that all authority and power is yours. Help us to be reminded of those truths this morning. We ask you to move among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. 
let's stop there and examine this for a minute. So one of the things we need to remember about the ministry of Jesus, while he has this public ministry and he's dealing with the crowds and he's teaching many people, he has this small group of disciples that he's really building into. These men, you know, are with him uh, day and night for three years and he's pouring into their lives and he's training them because he's going to depart. He knows that he is going to give himself as a sacrificial lamb for our sins, for the sins of the world. He's going to do that and then he's going to you know, return um, to be with his father and he's going to leave these disciples to continue to build on his foundation. And so he's got to you know, train them. And so notice again in verse 1 it says, He called them together. So there's a calling there. There's Jesus saying, I, I want you and I want you to do this. It says, and he gave them power and authority. Now, again, you have to have power and authority in order to give power and authority. It's another example of the power and authority that Jesus has. He has authority to, and power to give them authority and power to cast out demons, to have spiritual power, and to cure these diseases or these physical uh, sicknesses that the people have. And then it says, he sent them. So you have these, you know, these, these kind of big you know, action verbs of Jesus calling, and then he sends. And as he sends, he gives them you know, these expectations. He gives them very clear instructions. And it seems counterintuitive. Because basically he's saying, don't prepare yourself for this journey. Don't prepare yourself for this mission in terms of your physical practical needs, because obviously you're going to need food, you're going to need clothing, you're going to need shelter, but don't go and take the time and gather those resources and then go out. He just says, you know, I want you to go and I don't want you to take any of these things. Well, why is that? And we need to acknowledge a couple things about that. And, And one thing is this, is that this again is a training exercise. And what does Jesus need from his disciples if they're going to be effective in the world for him. They have to be able to trust him. They have to be able to trust God's power to provide for them. They have to be able to trust God that he is able. And he is able to do things when his disciples don't know how everything is going to be played out that there's still that call to obedience. Go. You know, he's going to send them out. He's going to send them out in a way that they have to depend on God for their need. Really cool. And then we also see, you know, in this, again, it's a training exercise, so it's not a, it's not a permanent state. It's not a, he not, he's not telling them, you know, Whenever you do these sort of things, never take anything with you or something like that. Because we see as we even get into the book of Acts and the mission of you know, the church and people been, being sent out and people do take provisions and do have provisions at times. And at times, you know, people have little and at times people have plenty. Um, so it's not a mandate that every time somebody goes out, they have to go out with nothing. But it's a lesson, and, I, and, I, and it's, a, it's to teach us dependence. And I hope that you have, at some point in your life, as you walk with God, where you have to be completely dependent on him, where you do not have the resource, where you do not have the ability just to say, well, I'll take care of it. 
but that what God asks you to do is bigger than the resource, the resources that you have. So that there has to be the step of faith. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, if no step of faith is required, is it really a calling from God? Because by nature, our relationship with him requires faith. Like that's at its core, is that trusting God, that he is and that he will. It's pretty cool. Our church um, partner down in, in Mexico, a church we're partnering with down there, they have a mission team and you know, work with indigenous people in this uh, Sierra de Zangalica mountain range. And you know, many of you have been, and we've had the privilege to be partnered with that for many years. But there's points and times where they actually do send the mission team. They say, go and take nothing with you for a week and trust that God will provide for their meals and for their shelter and for other things that they, they need as they go into a place. Um, and, those, and that's, again, what's, what's the purpose of it? It's that training. It's that dependence to trust God and to, to know that he is able. And it's a, it, it builds, when, when it's done well, it really builds the confidence of the missionaries knowing that God is a provider. It's a confidence builder that you can trust God. And that's something that as you take those steps of faith, you take those little, you know, smaller steps of faith, and you do that time and again, what happens is your, your faith grows. Because you've seen God provide in the past, and you know with this bigger thing, God's going to provide again. And so there's a process there to it. And so perhaps, you know, you had, you know, perhaps you're here this morning and, and you've walked with Jesus for a while and you had at, at the beginning of your faith some of those sorts of experiences where you had to trust and you had to grow and develop. And, you know, maybe things at this point have become a little bit comfortable. Could there be another point? Are you ready for when Jesus pushes the button and, and asks you to do something that's beyond that comfort zone? But notice again this morning that Jesus called them, he gave them power authority, he sent them, and he sent them with specific instructions. And that's good for us to remember this, remor- this morning. And it's also good for us to notice the response of the disciples, what does it say in verse 6? And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they did what they were told to do. The response was a response of obedience. And really, that is the response. You know, when we respond back in faith toward God, it's a step of, of faith, but it's also a step of obedience. You know, the scripture in the Old Testament says to obey is better than sacrifice. That, you know, obedience is really our, shows our highest allegiance to God. To obey. And that's true of whether you're being sent, or that's true even if you're just saying, this is how God wants me to live life. And there's times as each of us read the Word of God, there are things in it that go against our flesh and go against how we want to live, or go against our current practice, or go against our culture. And then there's a question of, am I going to be obedient or not? Am I going to say yes to Jesus and no to myself and what I want at this point in time? 
Am I going to trust him? Again, there's the faith element there. Am I going to trust him that his way is better? That he actually, that God actually knows what he is talking about. And he has good reason for what he asks me to do and how he asks me to live. Obedience is so key. So Jesus sends them out. They go and they're being obedient to preach the gospel. And we need to be reminded this morning the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Jesus is central to the gospel. He's, he's the key part of it. He is the good news. You know, who are people, who are the disciples telling others about as they go to these towns where they are giving testimony about Jesus himself? A gospel without Jesus is no gospel at all. A good news without Jesus is not good news. It's just another news. But it's not the key that we all need, Jesus himself. And so now we're going to have this little kind of interlude as you know, they're out doing this that uh, Luke includes here in verse 7. He says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed. That's all that was done by Jesus. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Okay, just to um, maybe undo a little bit of confusion this morning, uh, this Herod that's being talked about here is different than the Herod that's associated with the birth of Jesus. Um, that Herod is Herod the Great. There's multiple Herods in the Bible, and it can be a little bit difficult to keep them all straight, which Herod is which, and what are they doing. So uh, there's Herod the Great, who was at the time of Jesus and who ordered for all the uh, you know, male children under the age of two in that area to be executed. And that's why Joseph and Mary you know, fled with Jesus you know, to Egypt, and then eventually when Herod has died, they come back. And Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, is, is also known as that, um, is the youngest son of Herod the Great. So Herod had four sons, and he kind of divided up his land. But tell you, to tell you a little bit about you know, this Herod and what he's like, after his father dies, he goes to Caesar, goes to Rome um, with his other brothers, and he tries to uh, make it so that all of the kingdom that his father had is his. You know, he's, he's an ambitious guy. Um, and then um, he is visiting at one point with his brother Philip, and he kind of likes Philip's wife. And so he takes um, his brother's wife, Herodias, which is also, wait a second, those names are really similar. That gets a little confusing too. But Herodias he takes to be his wife. So he steals his older brother's wife. Uh, That's the type of person that you're talking about here. And John the Baptist earlier had um, basically made it very clear that what Herod had done, what Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas had done was sinful. It was wrong. And it was against God's way, and it was also against the law of the, the land. And so he calls him on that, and it's a little bit of a, you know, you could say it's a political statement that he's making there. He's talking about government, you know, the government official that runs that area and says he's wrong to do this. And it's for this reason that Herod puts John the Baptist into prison. Then we know from the other Gospels 
there's an event where there's a, a big party that Herod throws. His daughter dances at it. He's very happy. He's probably, it doesn't say this, I'm thinking he's a wee bit intoxicated because he tells his daughter, ask for whatever you want up to half the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. People usually don't do things quite like that when they're fully in their right minds. And, um, you know, she consults with her mother, who now she, she's a woman scorned. She's, you know, angry about John the Baptist calling her out for her sin. And so she's like, tell him you want John the Baptist, tell him you want his head on a platter. And so then that is what is done. John the Baptist is executed. So you can see why later on in Luke chapter 13, Jesus calls this Herod, he calls him a fox. He calls him a fox. He's like, you know, he's tricky, he's deceptive. He'll do what's best for himself. He'll kill when necessary. You know, he's a fox. Um, Jesus doesn't play with that at all. I want us to notice something, though, in that. And this is really in the context of what we're talking about this morning with the disciples being called and being sent, and then what Jesus is going to continue to teach us and to tell us this morning is that John the Baptist was fully obedient to God. And what was the result? His head on a platter. Now, we know that's not the end of the story. Those of us who know Jesus, we know that that's not where it ends because we know that, that John went to be, you know, went to heaven, went to be with God all of eternity. And the fact that his, you know, life on this earth was cut short in terms of, you know, normal human life experience, but meets an unti- what we would consider an untimely end, and there's suffering and there's pain in his life, we know that in the grand scheme of eternity, John the Baptist doesn't have any regrets. He doesn't have any regrets about being fully obedient to Jesus. But we also have to be real with the reality that there was a cost to John the Baptist being obedient to God. And in this case, it's not in every case, but in this case, it causes his life to be greatly shortened. Are you okay with that this morning? Are we okay with that reality? Because we don't, in this, and as, you'll, this will be more and more clear as we go on, you know, when we're talking, when we're presenting Jesus to people, so many times Jesus gets presented as, hey, here's this Savior. He'll keep you from hell. And that's like the end of the story. Well, he is much more than that. Yes, he is a Savior. Yes, he keeps people from hell. But much more than that, he is King. He is Lord. He demands full allegiance. He wants to be followed, you know, fully. And where nothing is life in life is more important than he is, that he has the first place in everything. And that's the side of it that many times we, you know, we don't really share. We share, you know, kind of like much later. It's like, are, are we being honest with people about what it means to follow Jesus? And I think that that's one of the reasons why our churches are so weak. 
Because we have all these people in them who come into them to begin with thinking that it doesn't require much at all. That all it is is, you know, this is my insurance. And that's it. And that's where it stops. And so, you know, if the bar is that low, then, you, you know, you kind of get what you expect. You can get what you expect on that. And so we need to be, I think we need to be up front and we need to be with honest. Like, yes, Jesus came to save you. And yes, he is, you know, is a savior, but he's also going to change your life and he's going to do so in a, in a radical way. And we see that whenever people are legitimately, authentically coming to Jesus and falling down on their faces before him and saying, Lord, please save me. Like there is a changed life that follows. It's not a perfect life, but it's certainly a changed life. Certainly a changed life. And if there is not a change to life, then we have to ask the question, has Jesus actually been met? Did you meet the real Jesus? Or did you meet a weak, pathetic Jesus that someone was selling to try to get a number? To try to get a number of saying, well, this many people you know, came to the Lord. So we need to let that sink in a little bit this morning. Verse 10, it says, And the apostles, when they had returned, they told him all that they had done, and then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. And so here Jesus continues to train his disciples. You know, after they had gone out and they had done these things and they came back, you know, he takes them alone. Why? Because that training process is continuing. You know, he's going to debrief with them. And he's going to pray with them. He's going to talk about what they learned and what obstacles they faced. He's going to continue to build into them. Many times we need to give some space and time when we have experienced kind of another level with the Lord. And let that sink in for a little bit here and, you know, marinate, let that marinate a little bit and say, okay, what has the Lord done and, and taught me, and how does that influence moving forward? What my life looks like. Verse 11, but it says, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had need of healing. We see again, Jesus is, you know, he, he's willing to receive the people who want him. You know, he doesn't tell them, hey, I'm just having this time with my disciples now. Y'all come back in a month or a week or whatever. No, I mean, he, he stops what he's doing with them, and he deals with the people that have come because he cares about them. You see his compassion. We often see um, in the Gospels Jesus looking out at the multitudes with compassion because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so you see the compassion of Jesus. You see it on a big scale when he sees the crowds, and you see it when he's dealing with, one woman, like was look, we looked at last week. You see his compassion and his love and his care, and he healed them. It says, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitudes away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a, a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they, they did so and made them all sit down. 
And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. This is commonly known as the feeding of 5,000. It says 5,000 men. We can assume, I believe, that there are women and children you know, there as well, so probably many, many more than 5,000 in real numbers. Um, it's just how it's commonly known, so you, know, you go with it a little bit. Um, but this, this account is actually found in all four of the Gospels. Um, it's in each one, which is a little bit unusual. And then you also have another feeding where Jesus it talks about the 4,000 men probably have women and children there as well. It's a separate event. Um, just a little note there. It's kind of interesting. In religion class I took when I was in college, a uh, professor, you know, it's like contradictions of the Bible, and Jesus fed 5,000 here and 4,000 there, and, you know, what do you do with that? And, you know, it doesn't take much work at all to understand that that 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels, and then there's another account, completely separate event. Um, so I just want to throw out there that sometimes when people are trying to show that there's, you know, oh, I found this error in the Bible and therefore you shouldn't believe, that a lot of times that's more agenda-driven than it is fact-driven. So test what you hear. I, you know, don't assume that what someone is telling you is necessarily true just because they have a PhD or whatever. And I would also just say, Test everything that I tell you or that anyone in this church preaches. Test everything by the Word of God. You have that responsibility yourself. Like, you know, those who are teaching have a responsibility to teach truth. But those who are listening have a responsibility to pursue truth. And we have, you know, the Word of God is accessible. It's accessible. It's accessible like it's never been accessible. It's never been more accessible than it is now, particularly if you happen to be an English speaker. You know, we know the scriptures are in many, many, many languages, but all the resources that are available, you can, you can check for yourself. But here are the key points for this. Again, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' authority and power again to overcome any, prom- any problem of limited resources. Jesus' power overcomes that. So notice what Jesus says you know, to the disciples. He says, you give them something to eat. Now, Jesus is fully aware about the limited resources, right? But again, it's that, what's he teaching them? He's teaching them dependence. He's teaching them that he is greater, that he's not bound by the rules the natural order of things. He's above those because he created those. And that he is more powerful than their situation and the situation of all these people. He's more powerful than that. And he can be asked to provide when it doesn't look like provision is possible. He can be asked. You give them something to eat. You know, they have their reason why that's not you know, practical. And then he says, okay, I want you to organize the people. You know, there is some organization here. It's not just random. You know, he, he does some organization and get the people to sit down in these groups, and we're going to do this in an orderly you know, way, which is good. 
But do we understand that our availability to participate in God's mission is much more important than our abilities? Your availability is much more important than your ability. And that's not to mean that, you know, abilities, and we see this even in the scriptures, that certain people have, you know, talents and gifts that are given by God, and they're, they're used for that purpose. If you have a gift of languages, you can use that, you know, in, in a powerful way that somebody that doesn't have that gift can't, use, can't be used. But the point here is that everyone can be used, and everyone can participate in God's mission. And availability is much more important than ability because you can have all the ability in the world, but if you close yourself off to being used by God, it's not going to matter. And if you have very little ability, but you have 100% availability, God's going to use your life in a powerful way. He'll use your life in a powerful way. That's the reality. But, you know, that kind of grates against our human flesh because... You know, so often we want to be the key. We want to be. We want to play the hero role. And we want to be the key to the story. Do we understand that in our faith, there's only one real hero? Jesus. Everybody else is a role player. There's one star. That's it. Everybody else is a role player. And we want to play our role well. But the problem is, you know, you have. So many people today, it seems like, are more concerned about their own glory than they are the glory of Jesus. And from a leadership perspective, that's one of the biggest problems for you know, the church as a whole. Is that you know, we have to be willing to be small and to not have the praise and to not have the accolades. And that's difficult because every one of us enjoys a pat on the back. Everybody, every one of us enjoys you're awesome. You know? and, and, I, and I don't want to take away from the reality that we, always, you know, we need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up. And to, you know, when people do things that are, are honoring to God, to thank them for that. But when you're thanked, I mean, the response is, should be what? All glory to God. If you're praised, what should the response be? All glory to God. Herod, um, the Tetrarch that we were looking at this morning, he had a nephew we read about in the book of Acts. And that nephew actually had Peter thrown into prison and James killed, the disciple, apostle James. And there's an event that happens where um, there's a crowd of people that are saying um, to Herod, Agrippa, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man, and he received, you know, he's receiving it, and God strikes him dead because he didn't glorify God. God is serious about his glory, and rightly so, and rightly so, because it's his. You know, and I want to illustrate that in a way that makes sense to you. You know, I don't have a right to be jealous about any woman except for one, my wife. That's it. But I do have a right to say, uh-uh, she's mine. Step off. You understand that? 
that's my, that's my rightful place as her husband. God, as God of the universe, his rightful place is the glory is his. That's his rightful place. Because he is the creator. He is God. Last thing to notice on this little section here. Uh, we just two, two more points on that. Is that there, were, there was an abundance that was left over. There was more than was needed. And, and again, God doesn't always do that. Sometimes it's, you know, he meets the need ex- exactly what the need is. A person needs $110.35, and they get $110.35, and not a penny more, and God met that need. And sometimes he meets in this situation where there's, there's extra. But notice they didn't just leave it on the ground and waste it. It was picked up, it was put in baskets, it was going to be used again later. And I just want to say with that, that when God gives you more than you need, let's not throw it away. Let's use it well. You know, we're responsible to be good stewards, whether he meets the need exactly or meets it with abundance. And most of us, by nature of the country we live in and the economics that are available to us, we have more than we need. We're in that category. We've been blessed abundantly. And so let's not waste it. Let's use it well for God's glory. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, it said, A man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set this before 100 men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. That's, uh, again, part of the ministry of Elisha, the prophet, um, where there's that, you know, a little bit of food feeds a lot of people, and there's some left over. And so here, with Jesus feeding the multitudes, again, he is, you know, it's that he has authority and power, but he's also greater than. You know, the author of Hebrews you know, sets out Jesus as you know, greater than the angels and greater than Moses and greater than the prophets and greater than David. And he, he makes this case for Jesus being you know, the exalted one, the anointed one. And that's part of the, the part of the case is that he's always able to do you know, more and abundantly more. And so here, with what Elisha the prophet and how the Lord worked through him, what we see with Jesus is many times, it's an exponentially greater miracle. Um, and that's just the case because we're talking about Jesus. Luke nine eighteen it says, And it happened as he was alone praying, Jesus was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist. Uh, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So Jesus asked that question Who do the crowd say? I am. The crowds really haven't figured it all out yet. They're, they're confused. They go, 
well, maybe John the Baptist has come back. Maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's another old prophet. You know, perhaps Elisha's name was thrown out there after the feedings of the people. And they go, well, what about what happened back here in our history? So he's none of those. He is the Christ of God, is what Peter says. What does that mean? He's the Christ of God. It means he's the anointed one. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah that they've been waiting for. He is the ultimate man. Jesus says the Son of Man. He referred to himself this many times. And some people have taken that as a, well, Jesus, you know, he more calls himself the Son of Man. And so he's not really, you know, saying he's God or deity, you know, he's identifying his, you know, humanity, but it's really um, not so much the case because as the son of man, you know, he is, he is representing the whole human race. He's the, um, the, the second Adam. He's the one, you know, as Adam in the garden represented the human race and put us all into sin. Jesus represents the human race as he goes to the cross and he, you know, gives a, the offer of salvation to those who would believe and those who would follow him. We need to be really, really clear on this point, though, because still today, who do people say that Jesus is? Well, some say he's a good teacher, and some say he's a good prophet, and some say he didn't, you know, he wasn't anything. But who do you say that he is? We would contend that he's not a good teacher if he isn't who he said he is. We, get, we would contend that he's a false prophet if he isn't who he said he is. We would contend that it's an all-or-nothing proposition with Jesus. He is either worthy to be followed fully or he is to be rejected. Because that's how Jesus presents himself. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's how he presents himself. You know, and in our pluralistic culture, which is nothing new, nothing new. You know, the Romans had a, you know, they, that, talk about pluralistic culture. Talk about anything goes culture. You know, when people are like, oh, our culture is this and our culture is that. I mean, compared to the Romans, what we have is kind of tame compared to the Romans. But go back and read what Apostle Paul writes in his book called Romans. He's not afraid. He is not afraid. He's not afraid of his culture. He's not afraid of what man can do to him. And it seems so many times we live in fear. We're afraid that something bad's going to happen. Or we're afraid somebody's going to get upset with us. You know, and sometimes people who, you know, call themselves Christians, etc., make it really difficult for a lot of us because they say really dumb things. Or they have really bad attitudes and then, you know, gets a reputation and you kind of get put into that category. And that can be a really difficult thing. And so, you know, what we want to do, we also want to distinguish between, you know, Christian culture that we live in and being a follower of Jesus. And those are not identical. Those aren't the same thing. 
being a follower of Jesus is much more specific. And it's, it's really acknowledging the truth about him. And a person has that because it's a, it's a true conviction from one's heart, not because of the, cultural, the culture that they grew up in. And so we have many people, and perhaps, you know, even you're here this morning and you kind of just grew up in Christianity. You grew up, you know, going to church. You grew up, you know, in, in that sort of thing. But you haven't actually come to grips with who Jesus is for yourself. You're still hanging on to somebody else's ideas or somebody else's faith. That's not good enough. I hate to tell you that this morning, but, but I don't hate to tell you that. I'd actually love to tell you that. It's, it's not good enough. You, you can't, you're not, you know, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, not on, you know, mama's religion. Or not, there, there's nothing in there about being part of a particular denomination, a particular group. It says, but by me, Jesus himself, he's the one that we have to deal with face to face. Reality, he's the one we need to deal with face to feet. Have you come face to feet with Jesus and bowed down before him and said, You have the authority, you have the power, you're the Savior, and you're the King? And yes, I believe you're the King of the universe, but be King of my heart, be King of my life. There's a difference there between that and then just going through some traditions. Big difference. It's not to mean all tradition is bad or wrong or anything like that. I'm not saying that. Don't don't misunderstand. Don't mishear. But there has to be the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. Not the theory, not the culture, not the custom, but the reality of Jesus Christ. Then he said to them all, verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory." And in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So let's look at how Jesus presents it. Because he gives a cost benefit analysis here. <laughs> the cost is if anybody desires to come after me, let him den- deny himself, let him take up his cross. Like, that's really, you know, key. And then he's like, you know, but what's the other side of it? What's your your other option? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? If you don't pursue Jesus, you pursue everything else but Jesus. And, you know, in the world's eyes, and maybe in your own eyes, a person obtains it. And they have money, and they have power. Have fame. What does Jesus say? What profit is it to gain all of that if he himself is destroyed 
are lost. We can look at it a little bit like Jello. You know, you, if you, Jello, you know, it wiggles all over the place, right? And you can put a piece of it, you know, you could put it in your hand and you can hold it just like that. And, it, you know, you can carry it around. It'll be okay. But you try to squeeze it and what happens? It's going to all shoot out, right? You can't, you know, the tighter you try to grab a hold of it, the tighter you try to, to, to have control over that jello, the less jello you're going to have. Eventually, you've got nothing in there. And that's the same thing with our lives. You know, you try to control it. You try to, to have your plan. You try to have it all figured out for yourself and for what you want. And you try to grab a hold of that and you squeeze it. And at the end of it, what's left of your life but nothing? Because there is no future in that. There is no future in that. Apart from God, you know, all is lost. But what about when you come to Jesus and you say, my life is yours, and you hold it with an open hand and you let him direct and you let him lead, you let him guide, and your, your life goal is to be obedient to Jesus. Now you have something. Why? Because now you have Jesus. You don't have something, you don't have jello, basically worthless. You have something eternally, of eternal value. You have Jesus himself. And an eternal communion and relationship with him. Forever and ever. So he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, you know, whoever rejects him, I don't want to have anything to do with him. It says, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. And so there's this idea that Jesus, when he's on on the earth with his disciples here, his glory is largely hidden. It's not fully revealed because, you know, the, the deal is we need to have faith. You know, God's gift through grace and the response is faith. But the, so there has to be, even though Jesus is doing all these miracles and he's showing all his you know, power, there still has to be somewhat of a veiling of it all. Otherwise, it, it eliminates the faith equation. Kind of takes that out of the picture. But it still requires faith. And today it requires faith because you have to trust that even what the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus told us is true about Jesus. It does require faith to believe him. It requires faith to believe, as we talk, you know, had this morning the little kids, has faith to believe that God put on human flesh and was born of a virgin. It takes faith to believe that. It does. Like, yes, there's, you know, we can explain it in terms of what's impossible for man is possible with God, and if God can create all the universe, yes, he can certainly do that. You can make a logical argument, but yet, at the end of the day, there still has to be a step of faith. There still has to be a step where you trust God as that he has revealed himself. You trust him. But he says then, verse 27, and I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And, you know, there's been question, what does he mean by that? And there's been, you know, numerous different things thrown out there in terms of, you know, different ideas of what that means. 
but in the very next passage for next week, um, we have what's called the transfiguration where Jesus' glory is shown. And he's there with Moses and with Elijah on the mountain. He's there with Peter, James, and John. So these things seem to be very much connected um, you know, in the story. And so we encourage you to come back next week and, and see that. Um, but that glory that is shown there is just a, a taste of what's going to happen when Jesus does return. Because that's what we have to look forward to is we're going to see Jesus in his glory fully as he is. And we're not going to have the barriers. And I'm not going to have my sinful flesh anymore to deal with. All that's going to be made new. It's going to be redone. So, good reason to be. We have to ask ourselves, though, this, because we can talk about that future, but we deal here today in the present. So our two questions for you this morning are, you know, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Your perception of him does not mean that that is the reality about him, but it does dictate your relationship with him. It does dictate that. How you view Jesus is of ultimate importance for your own life and for the lives of the people around you that you love and care about. And then we have that second question because... For most of us, we're not going to have a John the Baptist situation where the circumstances cause you to be at that crucible of decision where you say yes to Jesus and it's the end of your life. Or you distance yourself and you spare your human life. Most of us will you know, probably never be in that scenario. But that doesn't mean the question isn't still equally as important for our lives. And in fact, I would say, with the situation, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious thing, and it's a you know really intense, but it's for a very short duration. And if you can withstand that pressure, like John the Baptist did, it's done, right? But walking 50 years or so in surrender to Jesus, day in and day out. That's a different ballgame. And I would propose that it's equally as challenging, and in some ways, you know, it's challenging in different ways, but in some ways it's more challenging. Because we don't have that force of that moment of yes or no, and things are going to go one way or the other with that, we have all these distractions we have all these you know, transitions in life that come up and all these ways that it becomes so easy for us to get comfortable that we can distance ourselves from the seriousness of following Jesus. And we can put some space between us in terms of what is Jesus asking me to do today that's out of my comfort zone. That isn't what 
I want to do, but it's what he wants me to do. You get what I'm saying with that? It can be just be so easy, you know, as we go through life, just to get distracted and just to kind of turn our, turn our, our eyes away from the Lord. And it's like, yes, Jesus is still real. Yes, we still worship and follow him. But not everything is on the table. And I'll illustrate that, this kind of funnel story. I mean, it's Hannah Rose, her little five-year-old. She says to me the other day, she goes, Daddy, I was, I was praying, and I think that, you know, for Christmas, I need to get, you know, like, most, every, most everything to God. I was like, oh, that's sweet. You know, that's people, you know, what, what would you give to God? And then it was, well, you know that bag of toys that we don't use? That, that's good. We could give that. You know, I mean, she's five, you know, I mean, no harm, right? But how often are we exactly, you know, we all get what's being said there, right? You know, don't touch my favorite toys. Those are off limits. We get what's being said there, and we can kind of chuckle at it because it is funny. But, man, we live our lives like that so often. We do that very same thing. Oh, Jesus, it's all yours, but just don't touch you know, who I'm friends with, where I live, what I do, or any of that stuff. Don't touch that, and we're okay. Well, what's left? The stuff that we don't really care that much about. Are we, do we live that way? Do we do that with Jesus? And if we do, are we willing this morning to say, Lord, I know that's wrong, and the only way that changes is you've got to change my heart on that. You've got to change my heart. That's the reality of it. Because we're supposed to live with everything on the table, always, constantly. Always, constantly, everything on the table for Jesus. Let him decide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We just want to say we love you and we praise you. And Lord, forgive us. That so many times we just want to give you our old bag of toys and um, still hold tightly all the things that we deem are important. So help us to unclench our fists this morning, to live with open hands towards you, dear God. We ask for your help in that. We're really not capable in our own flesh and our own strength doing that on our own. We need the work of, of you, God, your power, your authority, your compassion and grace in our lives. Thank you that you're merciful, because if you weren't merciful to me, dear God, I'd be gone long ago. And so, Lord, I just ask this morning that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and that there would be the reality of you, Jesus, in our lives as you really are, not something that we've made up or that we've deemed, yes, we can handle that much, but you fully, Jesus, in our lives. Reality is we know that's the only life that's worth living. But yet we're so hesitant just to trust you, God. It doesn't make any sense why we are, we just are. And so we need your help.
ask for this morning. In your precious name, dear Jesus.